thanks for watching and uh, make sure that you subscribe to our channel and share this video with others. But we're here to give you facts so that you can then make an intelligent decision and then get involved yourself. So I'm Jason Mangum, the pastor of the River Church, and I have my good friend and co-author, Mark Anderson, who's a commentator and been in journalist reporting industry for over 34 years. And so we're going to be discussing with you today the truths about tariffs. I think there's a lot of myths or, or people don't oh, really know the truth behind certain things, you know, and that's one of the things is uh, that we want to do is break a lot of these myths and bring truth and bring fact so that you would have a better understanding of what really the big picture is, what is going on. And uh, so, Mark, great to have you here today. Great to be back for another video on World Impact News in yeah. cooperation with Stop the Presses. And yeah, Jason, the, the late Gus Stelzer, S-T-E-L-Z-E-R, he was a remarkable man. Gus Stelzer was one of those few corporate wongs that really believed in the working man. Yeah. He was uh, one of the top uh, people at General Motors for a number of years. And he wrote a remarkable book called The Nightmare of Camelot, Exposing the Free Trade Trojan Horse. Wow. Pretty powerful thing. Yeah. Now, Camelot refers to the Kennedy years when one of the first big free trade bills was passed. Yeah. Without getting into that. Which but, is, which is, sorry, to, just if I could interject. Is, go ahead. If you understand, as part of the globalist agenda is this free trade, free commerce. Um, yes, the, the word free, language is always so important. Now, when you think of the word free, normally Americans think um, not only not in prison, not only lacking shackles, but right. free to pursue your, your life, free to pursue your dreams, liberty, all the good things. But the word free can mean something negative too, if it means that you're liberating yourself from the moral order. You're freeing yourself from necessary and logical public right. oversight. You're doing something secretive, illicit, illegal, immoral, or evil. To be free from encumbrances or to be free from oversight, the word free can take on a little bit different connotation. Right. So if you think about free trade, think about free love. Free love had a lot of yeah. very negative consequences. Yes. And so... Free trade is an attempt to evade common sense and constitutional government mm -hmm. in the pursuit of the kind of commerce that drives a world federation or world government structure and not a nation-by-nation, family-of-nations, yes. sovereign nation-state type of structure. Right. So free trade, think of free love, and then you begin to see a little bit different hue to this. And what Stelzer wrote in his book, the Nightmare of Camelot, is a very important thing, Jason. We have free trade between our borders from nation to nation on an internationalist model, but we do not so much have free trade within our borders. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Now, how does this tie into tariffs is a natural question. Why are we talking about tariffs? Well, tariffs have been in the news here in the late spring, early summer of 2019 as President Donald Trump, as he prepares for the 2020 elections, came out and said, and said he was going to impose tariffs on Mexican imports coming into the United States. The most recent news claims that he's not going to actually apply much, if any, of those tariffs. Right. And that his apparent tactic was to get Mexico to disallow or at least cut way back on allowing the people from Central America, mainly from there, 
to come across, all the way across Mexico, and enter the United States illegally in these waves of caravans we've been learning about. Right, seeing a lot of it on the news, yeah. And so it was almost, that's what I heard, that it was kind of a negotiating tactic. Correct. To, to get at least Mexico to sit down at the table. And, and, it, and it appears to have worked to a, to a degree. Apparently, well, we'll use the word apparently, evidently, Mexico is now cooperating and is enforcing the security of its own southern borders, which is something you and I have talked about on, on the air and off the air, yes. Jason, that whatever the U.S. might do with a border wall, with other border defense measures, uh, getting more asylum agents within the Border Patrol, right. getting more um, judges in the immigration apparatus, all the processing, but whatever we might do, that if Mexico were to get control of its own southern border and severely limit this exodus so Central American countries can rebuild, right. Um, and so those people can be served, so we can solve this problem, that if Mexico were to secure its southern border, then that would be a major part in slowing down the exodus so we can get a hold of our own affairs at our border and begin to piece this back together and solve it. Right. It appears that President Trump has reached a degree of success as we film this June 10th, 2019. The exact extent of that remains to be seen. It's kind of a moving target. Yeah. But... But what, getting back, yeah, getting back to tariffs, because people don't understand. Yeah, yeah, what he used tariffs for, evidently, as I kind of draw the picture here, is a bargaining chip, as you said yeah. a minute ago. And it appears to have worked to a degree. Now, all along, as the New York Times and the McAllen Monitor, on all the diluted, and I mean diluted, <laughs> diluted and diluted, both, <laughs> uh, mainstream media, the mass media cartel, as they report on this, Oh, Trump's engaging in tariff wars, aren't these tariff wars terrible? Did we mention how terrible the tariff wars are? And did we mention how bad the tariff wars were? They're just terrible. They're just terrible. And did terrible. we mention how terrible they were and how much it's a tariff war? On and on and on. Okay, the whole thing that gets lost, Jason, is the title of today's show, What is a Tariff? Yeah. What does it do? Now... I was in Manhattan a few years back, and there's a building there, the old customs building near Battery Park in South Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Right on the sign, and maybe you'll flash a picture of this. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> is the fact that that was the major tax revenue um, port authority for many, many decades, especially in the 1800s. Wow. That the main source of revenue for the United States federal government for the first 125 years of existence of this country was the import tariff, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, as Gus Felser explains, tariffs are the most just and logical form of taxation known to man. They are very logical. They do a number of things. One, they protect the core industrial base, raw materials, production, and so on, and the self-sufficiency and the national sovereignty and the national security of the nation state. Wow, that's incredible. Now, that's how, great, great information. Now, how do they protect, how do tariffs do that? They diminish and dissuade and discourage in an over-reliance on imports. It doesn't mean no imports. It doesn't mean a barricade around the country right. and total isolationism and all these misleading, deceptive, and quite honestly, 
completely erroneous pejoratives that are hurled at anybody yeah. that mentions the word terror. You would think it was a terrible four-letter word. Right. It does not mean outright absolute internet internationalism or isolationism, excuse me. It does not mean that. What it does mean is through the protective measures that tariffs institute, again, the, the amount of imports is regulated and diminished enough to where the domestic economy can function and be the main driver of production and purchasing. Yeah. Production and purchasing. For, for the economic wheel to turn, ladies and gentlemen, you have to have both production and consumption. Yeah. You can't have one without the other. There's no reason to produce shoes if there's no one to wear them. Right. Supply and demand. Right. And there's no reason to buy shoes or no way to buy shoes if someone doesn't make them. Right. Uh, even money alone, if you took money and dumped it on a barren planet, it would be completely inert and useless because money is given its value by the existence of goods and services. That's correct. Yeah. Good analogy. So, back to tariffs. Besides the protective measure, the other thing tariffs do is provide a dependable sense source of revenue, excuse me, a dep dependable source of revenue that does not come out of the wallets and purses of you and your wife, of me and my wife, and everyone in America, every citizen, that tax source is from the outside coming in. It is not a tariff on the internal economy. Yeah. Now the critics will shout back at me, but Mr. Anderson, the tariffs make the prices of imported goods cost more, so that comes out of your pocket. My reply, very, very concise. All taxes impose costs that end up into the final price tag. Yeah. Do you think, ladies and gentlemen, for one minute that the United States income tax does not cost make, make goods and services cost more? In fact, the U.S. income tax is extremely onerous, along with property yeah. taxes. Here's another point. Tariffs are not confiscatory. What does confiscatory mean? It means if you don't pay it, somebody with a gun is going to come and take something that belongs to you. Yeah. The U.S. income tax and property taxes are confiscatory. Try, to, try not paying your income tax and see how long it takes. It'll take a little while, but eventually somebody with a badge and a gun is going to knock on your door. Absolutely. Same thing with property tax. The same thing with property tax. That's now why we, you, do you own a home? Not to get you know into all, all this, but you know we'll have to do a new, another segment on this because tax reform does need to happen, big especially time. property tax reform. Big time. And because let me ask you this: Do you own your home? Re do you really own your do home? You really own tax. Yeah. Ask yourself that question. Yeah. So and say, well, no, I, I do. I pay. I don't have a mortgage. I pay cash for it. Don't pay your taxes and see. How long you own how long you own that property? How long you own that home? So in any case, but that's how it all kind of intertwines and works in this. Well, well, right. So the most onerous taxes are domestic taxes, particularly income, yes. state and federal. Yes. Texas doesn't have to have a state income tax, but a higher sales tax. Yes. But sales taxes, you can moderate your paying of those to a degree, and they're not generally confiscatory. Although if the retailer doesn't collect the sales tax, he might have some repercussions. Right. But all that aside, the largest tax impact in no way, no, sh no way, shape, or form is tariffs on imports. It is domestic right. taxes. And those taxes, just like a tariff, end up in the final price tag. But think about this. Not only are the domestic taxes confiscatory, they're very heavy. What tariffs we do have tend to be light. 
And the fact of the matter is, is you don't need necessarily to have punishing or punitive tariffs to have the protectionism and to have the external source of revenue that doesn't fall so heavily on us to have that in place. But you have to have the tariffs high enough to reinforce those things and to create a source of revenue that, that can begin to uh, create the conditions where U.S.-based domestic taxes can be cut. State income tax, federal income tax. Now, property taxes are at the local and state level, school right. districts. There may not be a direct effect on property taxes, but you could have a federal revenue sharing program where you would collect at the water's edge, at seaports and airports, mm -hmm. uh, particularly seaports, you would collect the import tariffs. You could, if there isn't already something like this on the book somewhere and it's just collecting dust, you could have a revenue sharing program where once that revenue is realized from tariffs by the federal government, you could have block grants that don't loan the money to states and localities, but give that revenue, not as a, not as a loan, but as a grant, to the states, you could have a revolving loan fund as another concept, but you could have block grants to the states. The states could use that money for roads, bridges, and those roads and bridges include delivery routes for, for foreign imports. Right. And that could allow the states and localities to fine tune it for their secondary roads. Here in Hidalgo County, Texas, our secondary roads are in terrible condition. Yeah. And that could go down to the local level and begin to substitute for property tax revenue. Yeah. Yeah, because really the, the, the whole talk and the discussion about infrastructure in America, it, it, there is, there's a cost to that. That's right. why they're talking about now, you know, they've come up with some preliminary numbers that are in, you know, in what, the trillions? I don't even know. Uh, and when I hear the trillion word, I just go, yeah, I know you my brain shuts down. But there's some preliminaries, but there is a cost. So you have all these countries importing goods there's a cost. There's a cost to infrastructure. There's a cost to maintain. And there's a cost that's involved in the citizens of this nation. Why, so, ladies and gentlemen, do, do the top engineering firms of this country say that the U.S. infrastructure needs $2.3 with a T, if not more, yeah. for a total rebuild? What do you think, ladies and gentlemen, besides maybe a little over-dependence on automobiles and our lifestyles, we could do a little better with our rail systems and mass transit to a point. Right. But besides that, what do you think, ladies and gentlemen, is the main wear and tear on our roads and bridges and thoroughfares? Free trade. The, the massive importing of goods from foreign countries and the relative lack of production here. Now, yes, when we produce things here, they have to be trucked around just the same. That's true. There's wear and tear. But the fa fact of the matter is, is that the imported goods from foreign countries add a tremendous amount additional to our own foreign production. Right. And that's what pushes it over the edge and has led to this tremendous wear and tear of our roads and bridges. Is it not logical, ladies and gentlemen, for the manufacturers and the go-between, the, the middlemen in the overall foreign manufacturing and shipping and delivery and importation process, the importing companies, all of it, is it not logical that they should pay sufficient tariffs to re to upgrade our infrastructure that is used for the importation and sale of those of those right. goods and services? Yeah, because the, just, the question answers itself. Yeah, it's it's 
It's logical, common sense. I mean, it, it's, it's a no-brainer. It, it, it truly is. Uh, as an example of, of free trade among nations, but not within nations, relatively speaking, there's a bill, as we wind up this particular video, this is, this is very instructive. Back on May 21st of 2019, ladies and gentlemen, a bill was introduced by a kind of rebel Republican in the House, the U.S. House, the Kentucky Rep. Thomas Massey, M-A-S-S-I-E. <clears throat> and he got some support from a Democrat, Shelley Pingree, out of Maine, and Senator Angus King, an independent senator out of Maine. And they're reintroducing a bill originally from 2015 called the Processing Revival and Interstate Meat Exemption Act. Why is this needed? Well, what it's about, they call it the Prime Act. Think of Prime Rib, Prime yeah. Act. It has to do with beef, but as well as poultry and other meats. Uh, that's HR 29, excuse me, HR 2859 and S, like Senate Bill S 1820. It was, the, the bill was referred to the House and Senate Agriculture Committees uh, as of this broadcast. And this would give states the option, if the Prime Act were to pass, of allowing the sale of custom slaughtered and processed meat in intrastate commerce, not interstate between states, but commerce within states. Because as it turns out, Commerce within our states is far more regulated than commerce between nations. Yeah. It's more expensive to do business within Texas or within Michigan or wherever uh, on a, on a you know, comparative level than it is between nations. Right. The free traders of the world want free trade, again, between nations, but when you get within the domestic economies, the costs and the tariffs and the regulations are very high. Yeah. Oh, but they scream, you can't put a tariff between nations. Yeah. Oh, but they're perfectly fine with high costs, high taxes, what you would call tariffs, and all manner of regulations within our states yeah. and within our nation, but particularly within states, intrastate commerce. Yeah. Oh, that's okay all of a sudden. So my question to you, ladies and gentlemen, is when you're talking tariffs, don't, don't only define your terms, but ask the question, which tariffs are we talking about? We have them within our country. We only scream about them if they're between nations. Right. Even though between nations could be a great source of revenue and industrial protection. Yeah. And so, when the Wholesome Meat Act of 1967 was passed, there were 10,000 slaughterhouses in the U.S., but right now, guess how many there are? Wouldn't have a clue. 2,766. Wow. One-fourth of the slaughterhouses now that we, that we have now compared to... The year 1967. And that's because... Three quarters of our slaughterhouses have been closed down. That's because it's cheaper, ultimately, to do business internationally because of this free trade. Right. And that's they why narrow it down to fewer companies that, that get more business. Exactly. That's why, you, you know, have you ever gone into the supermarket and you want to buy some, buy meat, buy poultry from maybe your area? You can't find it. It's going to be international. It's going to be farm-raised fish or farm-raised beef from China. Typically. Typically. Right. I mean, and what domestic stuff you do get has been highly regulated, showered in costs and, and regulations. Right. Not that all those regulations are wrong. We don't mean that all regulations are wrong. We're simply saying 
they're multiplicitous, heavy, and expensive, and you have to get down and look at which ones help and which ones hinder. Right. Um, so it's not, we're not anti-regulation, we're anti-excessive regulation, we're right. anti-arbitrary regulation. And we're not anti-taxation, we're anti-excessive taxation or unfair right. taxation. Right. Um, but at any rate, so what this bill seeks to correct in simple terms is, okay, right now, if you want to buy locally produced beef of a high quality, a lot of your local small farmer beef producers are not selling beef by the cut. If they want to sell it by the cut, they have to go to this dwindling number of slaughterhouses where they have USDA inspectors and often drive enormous distances that they can't afford and pay for costs that are very hard to shoulder to get their locally produced high quality beef into the normal grocery chains. So basically they're regulated and costed, you might say, yeah. they're priced and regulated out of the local chains. So to get the local beef and buy, let's say a whole, a whole side of beef, yeah. um, most people, um, you either have to be a herd share owner, you actually have to be a own the animal in yeah. the heart or in home. Right. Herd shares are where people buy uh, shares in owning one or more animals. Yeah. And then they can buy the high quality beef from the animal that they co-own or own. And they're not buying it from HEB or a grocery store, they're buying it directly from the farmer. And that's expensive, relatively expensive. And they, a lot of people don't have the money and or the freezer space to do that. See, so they have to buy in bulk. Yeah to get the quality beef. Now to get, to get it to where the small meat producer can sell in the general meat market, the prime, the prime bill would, um, would uh, strengthen internal regulations within the states to give local meat producers more freedom, less regulations, less taxation, to where they'll be allowed to get their meat into local markets and not have to do the specialty sales. Right. Absent this prime bill, you have what you just what you were intimating there, um, Jason, and that is um, we're forced to buy meat from either longer distances within our country, from Canada and Mexico, or meat, meaning completely speaking, beef, poultry, fish, and so on, from international sources. Right. The the problems are obvious. The, the longer that that items that can spoil, perishable items, be it fruit or vegetable, the longer those things, fruit, vegetable, or meat, excuse me, animal or plant, the longer those things have to travel, the more likely there is for, the more likelihood there is for contamination, right. the more likelihood there is for spoilage. Right. And we're talking about things that people consume. We want our, us and our children to have the healthiest possible food. Absolutely. And generally speaking, the shorter the distance between field, or pasture and dinner plate, the better. The better. All that's things, why all things taken into account. All things taken into account. And that's why we do encourage organic, and you know, where yes. you're not eating something being pumped full of steroids or pumped full of preservatives. Exactly what you're talking Antibiotics. about. Antibiotics. Antibiotics and other things. To all manner of preservatives. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And now one of the popular things, especially among uh, the younger crowd, but I like it too, is grass-fed beef. Mm -hmm. And grass-fed beef right now. Um, as the Weston A. Price Foundation, a, a pro-local farming organization, Weston A. Price, they're pro-organic, pro-local farming, and they're not, they don't happen to be vegetarian. As they noted, 
Um, and I mentioned the statistics about um, which grass-fed actually tastes. It tastes different, but it's it's phenomenal. Right, it really is phenomenal because it's organic grass-fed uh, beef, which was basically how originally everything was. R right, and they they mentioned as a footnote that according to the West Indian Price Foundation. These custom slaughterhouses, which could be given more leeway by allowing more state control, right. are generally small facilities where relatively few animals are slaughtered daily. However, at the dwindling number of USD, USDA plants, three to four hundred cattle are slaughtered per hour at each of those 20, 2,100 and some plants. Wow. Three to four hundred cattle per hour. Right away, that means a diminishing... Um, uh, safety margin because you have a static number of inspectors inspecting at fewer slaughterhouses an increasingly large amount of meat largely coming in um, from all sorts of sources and um, we, we're not even sure about the packaged meat and how it was inspected in foreign countries right. and then we have for domestically raised beef and I think sometimes cattle are transferred from Mexico and Canada, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not a be-all and end-all expert on beef production, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking about the mechanics here, though. But this is what our local farmers are up against. They don't want to go to these um, um, one-size-fits-all, expensive, distant, faraway slaughterhouses and... Um, diminish the quality of their product. They want to be right. able to slaughter fewer animals in a given amount of time, have safer food. But while they're encumbered with all these regulations within the states and with the imports making their market smaller and smaller by right. taking up all the slack. Yeah, because they're overrun with that. They're overrun with that. It's, it's almost like dumping. Yeah. So grass-fed beef is still, to a large extent, coming from foreign sources, not totally, Texas is something of an exception, I understand, uh -huh. but is largely coming from foreign sources. So that squeezes out our local meat producers, and they're missing out on the grass-fed beef market. But if you lift all the tariffs and regulations and costs within states, interest. We're saying that within state, within the U.S. Right. Then they'll be able to um, produce more high-quality beef not be limited to the specialty sales by herd shares and cow shares, right. be able to sell quality beef in our markets, and granted, it might cost a little more at first, perhaps, but it would be labeled correctly, ladies and gentlemen, and you'd be getting the very best of locally grown, locally produced meat, be it poultry, beef, whatever it might be, and that, you could try it, and if you like it, you buy more of it, you don't have to buy a huge amount in order to buy it at all, and then you would have, voila, free trade within U.S. borders. Can you imagine? Wow. Incredible. And, and we would we, we'd begin to lift the other tariffs that no one wants to talk about. Again, all, all, all the word tariff is is, is is synonymous with tax. If you come in from Los Flores, Mexico, through a gate and you're driving your car to come back into the U.S., it says tarifa. That's right. Hispanic for tariff. It's not a tax on a good or service, it's a tax on you driving you and your car back into the United States. Exactly. The, the word tariff is just a synonym for the word tax. A tax is a tariff, a tariff is a tax. It's just a common term for an import tax. So again, all taxes are tariffs, all taxes impose costs, and we have to learn to have free trade 
within our borders, genuinely free trade, not the pseudo-free trade, not right. the fool's gold that we're sold with international, yeah. which enriches a small amount of producers, a small amount of brokers and bankers, a small amount of import houses, one big happy family, <laughs> getting rich off of the way they have the system set up, rather than paying a sufficient and logical tariff to import all this stuff, give our government the revenue it needs to build infrastructure, to rebuild our roads and bridges, and here's the coup de grace, because people flowing across our borders relatively open is also something generally supported by free traders. It would also mean that tariffs, when actually enacted against Mexico, right now it was just a bargaining chip, but actually enacted, actually should pay for our land ports and seaports and logically at least part of the border wall. Yeah. Ultimately, that would be a logical place where tariffs could contribute, not pay the right. whole cost probably, but contribute to the border wall, which and is- And the border security. Border security, right. be it land ports, be it seaports, and also the land between the land ports right. and the frontier. Right. Because contraband comes in, not just the smuggling of people and drugs, well, not just the smuggling of people, which is making more money for the cartels than the drugs, but the smuggling of contraband, and that also undercuts our economy. Right. So it actually makes sense to have tariffs pay for the wall, which is what actually, that's actually what Trump meant, ladies and gentlemen, when he said Mexico will pay for the wall. Sometimes the president doesn't always explain things on Twitter. What he actually meant, to my understanding, is tariffs on Mexican goods would help pay for the wall. Right. And as we're explaining here, all forms of infrastructure, all forms of ports, and frontiers where there's illegal entry of, of people and material, all is justified to be regulated and for those tariffs to pay for that infrastructure. Right. So as we wind this up, tariffs, as you can see, are misunderstood. They're the most logical, just form of taxation that I've ever heard of and that experts like Gus Stelzer ever wrote about. And they have a purpose. They are not a cannon pointing at another country, getting ready to lob shells on it. Right. What, what the media calls a trade war is really just trade negotiations where the U.S. is trying to recover after years of hundreds of billions of dollars of annual trade deficits with China. What did, that, what did those trade deficits do as, as, as we conclude here? Those trade deficits with China a huge trade surplus on their side, a huge trade deficit on our side, multi-billion dollars a year, hundreds of billions of dollars a year, bled out of our country, forfeited by our country, transferred to China, and where do we think China built its military? How do you think China built its military, ladies and gentlemen? Not through legitimate foreign aid, but through backdoor foreign aid, leveraging the trade surplus it, it has enjoyed with the U.S. Yeah. and transferring billions of dollars that could have been spent here on our infrastructure yeah. and sending it over there. And what has that enabled Chinese generals to do, Jason? Yeah, that's where you could see where it has. It has funded the military, the Chinese military, which the mil it's a military state. You have to understand how the, go the government in of China works. And so that's where you have four generals that I know of. I don't know them personally, but I've got the intel on it. There's four generals that own four manufacturing plants that manufacture a great number of goods that come into this nation. So you have the military who owns the manufacturing plants 
where goods are coming into this country. And, isn't that and it produces, matter of fact, a, and, and I, I heard the number 99% of what actually Walmart is selling. In terms of foreign merchandise. In, in terms of, of foreign merchandise. Right, and, and isn't that interesting? Is it a coincidence? We'll call it a coincidence for now. Maybe we'll put quotes around coincidence. Isn't it interesting that military generals would be involved in putting all those imports into the States, knowing full well that that will... Um, diminish our production, give them a trade surplus that they'll leverage to put into their military. Right back into their country. Right now, back into now their you, you tell me that that circle of money is coincidental. I'll go ahead and be fair and call it coincidental for now. It's just happenstance. But I think we know that that's probably not likely the case. And yet to be determined, but probably not likely the case. So we all know that, that there is a global market out there, but it needs to be fair. It needs, you know, it cannot be one-sided. And that's one thing that Trump is doing, which is taking back and saying, what is good for America? You know, not that we don't care about the other countries, not that we don't care about the immigrants that are coming in. That, that's true. This not is... that we don't care about our allies, but that there should be a fairness in doing business in America with America or outside of America. Equity is the word. Equity. Equity and there fairness. Needs to be equity and fairness. And so, and that's why we're talking about the truth and the facts behind tariffs. And so we hope that this informed you, gave you some good information so you can make intelligent decisions. And so make sure that you subscribe, share this video with others so they can be informed too. And, so, and remember, tariff is not a dirty word. Not a bad word at all. So <laughs> well, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.